Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast dedicated to serial killers, who they were, what they did, and how. Episode 195. Tonight, dear listener, I bring to you a true serial killer superstar, one of those who shine the darkest. Some books and articles claim tonight's subject is the world's premiere serial killer, i.e. the one who has murdered the most victims. But I disagree. It is believed, and quite thoroughly documented, that Harold Shipman prematurely ended the lives of 284 human beings. As loyal listeners know, Pedro Lopez surpasses that number. But 284 might very well make Shipman the world's second most prolific serial killer, which is extraordinary in itself, even more so considering that he did not murder vulnerable children in the middle of nowhere high up in the Andes Mountains. Shipman murdered victims in their own homes, and he operated here in the West, in the UK to be precise. So sit back and relax as I start us on this lengthy journey down into the abyss of terror that this bespectacled grandfather-appearing GP unleashed upon those he had sworn to help. Enjoy. As always, I want to publicly thank my elite TSK Producers Club. Their names are... Amy, Boo, Brenda, Cassandra, Christy, Cody, Colleen, Connor, Corbin, Craig, Sid, Derek, Emily, Fawn, Florida Man, James, Janine, Jennifer, John, Johnny, Jonathan, Caitlin, Kathy, Christina, Kylie, Lance, Lisa, Lisbeth, Magic Man, Madeline, Meow, Missy, Nick, Oakley, Andre, Operation Brownie Pockets, Robert O, Robert R, Russell, Sabina, Scortnia, Scott Sputnik, The Radio, Susanna, The Duggletons, Trent, Val, and Vanessa. You are the backbone of the Serial Killer Podcast, and without you, there would be no show. You have my deepest gratitude. Thank you. I am forever grateful for my elite TSK Producers Club, and I want to show you that your patronage is not given in vain. 
all TSK episodes will be available 100% ad-free to my TSK Producers Club on patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast. No generic ads, no ad reads, no jingles. I promise. And of course, if you wish to donate $15 a month, that's only $7.50 per episode. You are more than welcome to join the ranks of the TSK Producers Club too. So don't miss out and join now. I swear by Apollo the physician, and Asclepius, and Hygieia, and Panacea, and all the gods and goddesses as my witnesses that, according to my ability and judgment, I will keep this oath and this contract, to hold him who taught me this art equally dear to me as my parents, to be a partner in life with him, and to fulfill his needs when required to look upon his offspring as equals to my own siblings, and to teach them this art, if they shall wish to learn it, without fee or contract, and that by the set rules, lectures, and other mode of instruction I will impart a knowledge of the art to my own sons, and those of my teachers, and to students, bound by this contract, and having sworn this oath to the law of medicine but to no others. I will use those dietary regimens which will benefit my patients according to my greatest ability and judgment, and I will do no harm or injustice to them. I will not give a lethal drug to anyone, if I am asked, nor will I advise such a plan, and similarly I will not give a woman a pessary to cause an abortion. In purity and according to divine law will I carry out my life and my art. I will not use the knife, even upon those suffering from stones, but I will leave this to those who are trained in this craft. Into whatever homes I go I will enter them for the benefit of the sick, avoiding any voluntary act of impropriety or corruption including the seduction of women or men, whether they are free men or slaves. Whatever I see or hear in the lives of my patients, whether in connection with my professional practice or not, which ought not to be spoken of outside, I will keep secret, as considering all such things to be private. So long as I maintain this oath faithfully and without corruption, may it be granted to me to partake of life fully, and the practice of my art, gaining the respect of all men for all time. However, should I transgress this oath and violate it, may the opposite be my fate.
This, dear listener, is the full text of the famed Hippocratic Oath. The Hippocratic Oath has been eclipsed as a document of professional ethics by more extensive regularly updated ethical codes issued by national medical associations, such as the AMA Code of Medical Ethics, first adopted in 1847, and the British General Medical Council's Good Medical Practice. These documents provide a comprehensive overview of the obligations and professional behavior of a doctor to their patients and wider society. Doctors who violate these codes may be subjected to disciplinary proceedings, including the loss of their license to practice medicine. Nonetheless, the length of these documents has made their distillations into shorter oaths an attractive proposition. In the UK today, around 70% of medical universities require a recitation of the Hippocratic Oath, although modernized and made far more secular in its language. I mention this because the person we are looking at tonight was a medical doctor a highly respected medical doctor, in fact, and he violated the Hippocratic Oath more fundamentally than any doctor since perhaps Dr. Joseph Mengele. So imagine, if you will, dear listener, a late night in August in the UK. The Laurel Bank Nursing Home is located at G. Cross Hyde, you are looking out the windows into the dismal rain and bleak light from various yellow street and park lights. The view is directly towards the nearby cemetery. There, only partly lit by a few lamps, shadowy figures move about amongst the graves. The figures appear almost black, and perhaps you get a feeling of witnessing something occult going on, some Lovecraftian ritual or cultists trying to summon demons from hell. In reality, you are in fact witnessing police officers. They are, in cooperation with cemetery staff, exhuming a grave. They were digging up the coffin of Kathleen Grundy, an 81-year-old widow who had died five weeks earlier, suddenly, at her £200,000 home, a quarter of a mile, that's about 400 meters away. The officers themselves, one of them a seasoned officer, soon to retire, also felt a chill down their spine as they were looking at the dirty coffin being hoisted up in the pouring rain under the black rain-filled sky. The seasoned officer was Detective Inspector Stan Egerton, and he was certain old Mrs. Grundy had not died a natural death. She had been murdered, and he was looking for hard evidence. The headstone on Kathleen Grundy's grave in the cemetery behind Hyde Chapel is tasteful, plain. The pale stone has the following words inscribed beneath her name. Died unexpectedly after a lifetime of helping others. End quote. Beneath are the details of her family. Husband John, daughter Angela, grandsons Richard and Matthew. The inscription on the headstone is a simple and moving tribute to a woman who, however she had died, 
would have deserved a place in the Chronicles of Hyde, a woman who took genuine pleasure in being useful to the community. Mrs. Grundy's will had stipulated that after her death, her entire estate, worth £400,000, should go to her general practitioner doctor, a Dr. Fred Shipman. The reason D.I. Egerton had become involved in the case was due to Mrs. Grundy's daughter. She had been shocked to learn that her mother had disinherited her completely. It was totally out of character as the two had a close and warm bond. Angela had thus gone to the police. The case was passed to D.I. Egerton, and after a quick reading of the case notes, his curiosity was piqued. Mrs. Grundy's death had caused quite a stir in the town. D.I. Egerton, who had lived in Hyde for more than thirty years, had never met her to talk to, but he knew her by sight, and he had certainly heard about her. Her husband John, who had died thirty years earlier, had been mayor of the town in the 1960s, and a lecturer at Manchester University. Both he and Kathleen were born and bred in the area, and they first met when he was her history teacher at Hyde Grammar School. After his death, in 1968, she continued to live at their beautiful 17th-century cottage in G. Cross. She always referred to G. Cross as the village, and there were few people in the village she did not know, or who did not know her. She served for many years on the local council as conservative member for Werneth Ward, and had been chairman of the Tameside and Glossip Community Health Council. One of the tower blocks in the town is named after her husband, and there is a plaque commemorating his service to Hyde in the town hall. Mrs. Grundy was a regular member of the congregation at Hyde Chapel on Stockport Road, G. Cross, a Unitarian chapel as big and imposing as any parish church, the first fully Gothic nonconformist chapel in England, in fact. D.I. Egerton also knew, because he was a sociable man with a great many friends and contacts in the town, that her death had come as a shock to many people. She may have been just a week away from her 82nd birthday, but she was only old in terms of years. Kathleen Grundy was fit, active, alert, and a great asset to the community. She had no illnesses and was spry as a woman of many decades her junior. Dr. Shipman had been held in the highest regard by the late Mrs. Grundy. She had felt, as so many of the people on his patient list did, that he was one of the last of a dying breed, an old-fashioned family doctor with plenty of time for his patients. When he had set up a solo practice, Mrs. Grundy had followed him as a patient. She was so enthusiastic about him that she had, according to a friend, considered giving him two hundred pounds from a charity she was involved with to his patient's fund. Despite her age, she had few physical problems. 
She loved gardening. She frequently went on long walks. She was on the committees of several local charities. Mentally, she was alert enough to do two half days a week working for the age concern shop opposite Shipman's practice, known as the surgery. She had deposited her shop's takings the day before her death. Three times a week she helped prepare and serve lunches for old people at the luncheon club held at Werneth House, a social centre for pensioners about 500 metres away from her home. As the organiser of the club, she would shop for the food, help prepare and serve it, and assist with the clearing up. The other volunteers were on average 20 or 30 years younger than her, but Kathleen Grundy did not think of herself as old. On the day before she died, she had visited a female friend. There she had talked proudly about her grandsons, one of whom, 24-year-old Richard, had just gotten a first at university, similar to an A in the American system, and the other, 23-year-old Matthew, had just gotten a job in Japan. She told her friend, named May, she was expecting Dr. Shipman to call the next day to take a blood sample and to get her to sign some papers. She said how good it was of the doctor to come to her home rather than expect her to go to the surgery. Her death was discovered when, on Wednesday, the 24th of June, she had failed to turn up at Werneth House to help with the lunches. When telephone calls to her home went unanswered, the caretaker from the pensioners' centre in Lord Derby Road, John Green, and one of the volunteers, Ronald Pickford, went to the house, and failing to get a reply to their knock, let themselves in through a door they were surprised to find unlocked. In the living room they discovered Mrs. Grundy, fully clothed, curled up on the sofa as if asleep. She looked peaceful, but had a grey complexion. Mr. Pickford knew that Shipman was her GP and knew his number. When the doctor arrived about ten minutes later, he told John Green that he had seen Mrs. Grundy earlier that morning, but only for a talk. He said she must have been well enough to get dressed, as when he saw her she was in her nightclothes carried out what the police described as a cursory examination of the body, and told the two men she had a quote-unquote a cardiac arrest. Mrs. Grundy's friends from the luncheon club asked Dr. Shipman what they should do next, and he advised them to contact a firm of solicitors in the town, Hamilton's, whom he said would handle everything. When they were contacted, they denied, acting for Mrs. Grundy, but said that they had received a will, supposedly from her, that very morning. They advised the Werneth House volunteers to contact her family. When Mrs. Grundy's daughter, Angela, could not be reached, the police were called. Two police constables went to Mrs. Grundy's house and spoke to Dr. Shipman by phone. He again said she had died from natural causes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time seems to be a dwindling resource nowadays. Work, family, bills, chores, and the endless time thief of social media. But imagine if you will. Dear listener, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Everyone needs someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. So, if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash serial killer today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Serial Killer. After some time, Angela was reached. To her, there was an enormous sense of shock and loss. She had no clue that her mother had any health problems. Angela, who was 53 at the time, drove with her husband David to Hyde early the next day and saw Shippen at his surgery before going to her mother's home. The doctor told her that he had seen her mother the day before for a routine matter, but that Mrs. Grundy had complained of feeling unwell in some ill-defined way. When writing the death certificate, the doctor was more clear. He wrote that the cause of death was simply old age. This is a legitimate medical explanation of death, but among doctors it is regarded as a last resort, to be used only with the very elderly and infirm, when so many organs and bodily functions are failing at the same time that it is impossible to single out one single cause. When it is used, it is usually accompanied by some more specific medical information. Kathleen Grundy, one of the healthiest 81-year-olds anyone could think of, the death certificate did not make sense. In the immediate aftermath of Mrs. Grundy's passing, there was the usual activity surrounding the organization of a funeral. Hundreds of mourners packed Hyde Chapel 
on the 1st of July to pay their tributes to Mrs. Grundy. Angela also had the sad duty of sorting out her mother's will. As a solicitor herself, Angela had always handled all her mother's legal affairs and knew from the will she had in her possession how the old lady wanted her estate disposed of. The bulk of her money and property was planned to be going to the family. Angela was therefore very much surprised to be contacted twelve days after her mother's funeral by the solicitors in Hyde, Hamilton Ward, saying that they had Mrs. Grundy's last will and testament. They were unhappy with the way in which they had been instructed to act for Mrs. Grundy, and wanted to talk to Angela about it. It was as a result of this conversation with Brian Burgess, the probate and conveyancing manager at the firm, that Angela began to investigate, and quickly came up with sufficient information to make her suspicious enough to go to the police. What D.I. Stan Egerton discovered was that on the day of Mrs. Grundy's death, Hamilton Ward received a typewritten letter, apparently from her, dated the 22nd of June. With it was a will, dated the 9th of June. The letter, purporting to come from Mrs. Grundy, said, and here I quote, Dear Sir, I enclose a copy of my will. I think it is clear my intention, and wish Dr. Shipman to benefit by having my estate, but if he dies or does not accept it, then the estate goes to my daughter. End quote. It also said that she would call in within the next few days to verify her instructions. The will reinforced the letter. It stipulated that her entire estate be left to Dr. Harold Frederick Shipman. There was nothing for her daughter or the grandsons she adored. It also requested that her body be cremated, which was completely at odds with everything Kathleen Grundy had ever expressed about her death. As this will had a later date than the one in Angela's possession, at face value it appeared as though, in the final days of her life, Mrs. Grundy had acted completely out of character, and, without discussing the matter with her daughter or any of her family friends, had simply rewritten her will, excluding everyone, except Dr. Fred Shipman. This alone was enough to make Angela, and subsequently Stan Egerton, very suspicious. There had been no family quarrel, and Mrs. Grundy had shown no signs of becoming confused or demented, quite the reverse. The firm of solicitors in Hyde had also received another letter, again typed, dated the 28th of June, four days after Mrs. Grundy's death, purportedly to come from someone who signed their name S. or J. Smith. This unknown person claimed to be a friend of Mrs. Grundy's. The letter said, and again I quote, I regret to inform you that Mrs. Kathleen Grundy, of 79 Joel Lane, died last week. I understand she lodged a will with you, as I am a friend who typed it out for her. End quote. The solicitors were not willing to start winding up an estate on the basis of two letters from people they had never met. It took them a few days to trace Angela Woodruff. As soon as they did make contact, 
they sent her photocopies of all the documents. Angela's suspicions were immediately aroused by the phraseology of the will, by the fact that it referred to her mother's house, when Mrs. Grundy owned two houses, and the bad typing. It did not seem at all like the handiwork of her meticulous mother, who had worked as a secretary before her marriage and was a proficient typist. Before going to the police, she tried, and failed, to track down the unknown letter-writer called Smith, who, despite claiming to be a friend, did not attend Mrs. Grundy's funeral. But Angela did find the two people who had witnessed the will, Paul Spencer and Claire Hutchinson, and travelled to Hyde to see them. Talking to them confirmed her fears that the new will was a forgery. Paul Spencer was running a pet shop in Market Street, close to Dr. Shipman's clinic, with his girlfriend Sarah Coulthard, at the time he was asked to witness the will. He was twenty-nine, and had been a patient of Dr. Shipman's from the age of eleven. He shared the popular view of the doctor, describing a visit to him as like chatting with a favourite uncle. Paul had sat in the doctor's waiting room along with a young woman with a baby, both waiting their turn to see their GP. Instead of being called in, Dr. Shipman had stuck his head out the door and asked if the two of them could witness a signature for him. Inside his office sat an old lady and the doctor. According to Paul, Dr. Shipman said something to the effect of, Are you sure about this, Kath? Absolutely sure? End quote. The lady had simply answered in the affirmative. The form was a four size, doubled over with the back folded over to the front halfway. All they could see was the name Kathleen Grundy and her signature at one side. Paul signed first and went out, and a few seconds later the young woman Claire came out. The pair did not discuss it, both thought it was some sort of routine medical form, and did not think any more of it. To make matters even weirder, Paul never actually saw any signature on the form he signed, only Kathleen Grundy's name in print. In actuality, Mrs. Grundy believed she was going to sign a consent form to participate in the survey on ageing that Shipman claimed he was involved in. This is why she simply said yes, without elaborating when asked if she was sure. Three weeks later, Angela and David Woodruff arrived on Paul's doorstep, although he had no idea who they were. Angela asked if he was Paul Spencer and if he had signed a document at Dr. Shipman's surgery. She also showed Paul a photocopy of a document. It had his name on it, but it was clearly not his signature. Angela asked Paul to do some specimen signatures, which he did. She also went to the bank, which handled the Age Concern account, and compared her mother's signature on paying-in slips to that on the will. Again, the signatures did not match, and she asked the police to start an investigation. As soon as D.I. Stan Egerton and Officer Dave O'Brien saw the photocopy of the will and the original letter to the solicitor firm, they were sure they were dealing with a forgery. 
Even to an untrained eye, it was clear they had been typed on the same typewriter. It was instantly obvious to the police that they were dealing with a serious case of fraud, but alarm bells were ringing in D.I. Egerton's brain. It seemed clear, although he needed to gather more evidence, that his main suspect was Dr. Harold Frederick Shipman, a well-established and busy GP with a flourishing practice in the town. This was obviously not one of the usual run of crimes that he had investigated during thirty years in the force, nor the usual run of criminal. But there was something far more important at the back of his mind. He remembered a previous police investigation which had happened while he was away on holiday, earlier that same year. The doctor at the centre of that was also Dr. Shippen. Another GP had alerted the coroner to the large number of deaths among Dr. Shipman's patients. Suddenly, a case of fraud began to look like something even more sinister, especially in conjunction with Angela Woodruff's assertion that her mother's death had been totally unexpected. Stan Egerton could see that the only way he was going to satisfy his fears about Mrs. Grundy's death was by the radical step of exhuming her body. It was one month after Mrs. Grundy was buried that a small team of police officers and staff from UK Exhumation Services met at Hyde Chapel in the early hours of Saturday the 1st of August. Although the previous day had been fine, the weather had changed and it was cold, windy and very wet. They started work at 2 a.m., unsure of how long the job would take. Soil samples were meticulously taken from above the coffin, at all sides and eventually from beneath it, so that any possible contamination from the soil could be eliminated. The post-mortem on Mrs. Grundy was carried out the same morning, at Tameside General Hospital, by forensic pathologist Dr. John Rutherford. At the same time as Dr. Rutherford did his work, plainclothes Officers approached Dr. Shipman at his clinic with a search warrant. In particular, they were looking for a typewriter. The doctor stated that Mrs. Grundy had borrowed his typewriter, thus admitting that he knew why the officers were there. The typewriter was taken away, and the forensic laboratory was later able to tell the police team that it was indeed the machine on which both letters to Hamilton Ward and the will had been typed. Shipman's fingerprints were found on the typewriter, and a print from his left hand little finger was found on the will, but not Mrs. Grundy's or those of the two witnesses. At the same time as officers talked to Dr. Shipman at his clinic, more police officers were visiting Dr. Shipman's house in Row Cross Green. It was important to do both searches simultaneously to prevent the doctor destroying any evidence. The officers who carried out the search were surprised by what they encountered. Police spend a great deal of their working lives dealing with the kind of homes where the smell catches in your throat and makes your eye water, squalid places where poverty, 
apathy and addiction drag conditions down to a sordid subhuman level. They do not expect such conditions in tidy, well-maintained, middle-class enclaves with two cars on every drive. It is always more of a shock when, behind the painted doors of suburbia, they find families living in filth and mess. That's what they found at the shipman home. One constable later described it as the sort of place where you wipe your feet on the way out. There were piles of newspapers, trash and dirty clothes in every room. The mess was not just untidiness, it was filthy. Another constable wore rubber gloves to sift through the mess. Yet another constable joked that the doctor was growing his own penicillin on the grill pan. Although the search did not produce anything relevant to the forgery of Mrs. Grundy's will, there were some surprising finds at this and subsequent searches. There was a great deal of jewellery, rings that would obviously never fit round his wife's primroses, chubby fingers, brooches of little worth, no doubt of sentimental value to their owners, i.e. the sort of cheap bits and bobs that every old lady in Britain has. There were also medical records. A carrier bag in the garage was found to be full of records of patients, and the large cardboard box in the house contained even more. Fred Shipman remained cool, calm, and appeared unsurprised by the police invasion of his premises. He was superficially cooperative, although he established the ground rules by which he would always attempt to deal with the police. He treated them with condescension and arrogance. It was not until the 2nd of September that the toxicologist at the forensic laboratory, Julie Evans, came up with a cause of death for Mrs. Grundy. Police were notified that the morphine level found in the old lady's body was consistent with that found in cases of overdose, and that death would have occurred within three hours of the fatal dose. The investigation was now officially treated as a murder inquiry, not just a case of fraud. When confronted with the morphine levels in Mrs. Grundy's body, Dr. Shipman suggested that the old lady was a drug addict. The idea of the immaculately dressed, very fit and spry, social and well-to-do, upper-class, 81-year-old lady going down to the local street drug dealer to score user doses of heroin would be funny, if not for the fact that they were obviously dealing with a murder. Needless to say, the police found no evidence of morphine-based drugs or drug-taking paraphernalia in the neat home of the ex-mayoress. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And with that, we come to the end of part one in this sojourn into the life and crimes of Harold Shipman. 
I hope you enjoyed listening to me telling it to you. Next episode will continue his saga. So as they say in the land of radio, stay tuned. What follows is a message to my dear Norwegian listeners in Norwegian. Jeg minner om at min norskspråklige podcast Seriemordepodden er tilgjengelig å lytte til både på Spotify, Apple Podcasts og alle andre steder du hører på podcast. Så som de sier i Radioland, følg med.